God, we have given you worship to the best of our abilities. And now we turn to hear a word from you. I pray, God, that as we quiet our hearts before you and as we prepare to hear what it is that you have for us this morning, I pray that those of us who are hungry for the bread of life would be fed. Pray that those of us who are thirsty for living water would drink. I pray that you would show us what it is that you have to teach us this morning, God, and I pray that we would not leave this place unchanged, but that we would, uh, our faces would shine like Moses because we have been in your presence and we have had an encounter with you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what it shows us. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. And we want to know you more. And so we ask that you would speak clearly now. Speak through me. May the truth of who you are and the, the precious good news of your gospel be communicated clearly and powerfully in this moment. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you, worship team. Two waters this morning. It's special. Um, good morning. Uh, it is so good to be back. Uh, for those of you who maybe were gone for July, uh, I was too. And so we're all coming back together. Um, I want to say thank you. Thank you for letting us take that time off. It was amazing. Uh, it was a restorative and restful time. Uh, we went to Tennessee for several weeks where both Beth's family and my family is. And while we had seen our parents a few times over the last year and a half, we had not seen siblings or cousins or aunts and uncles. And it was incredibly life-giving to, uh, to be away and to be with these people we dearly love. So I just want to say thank you to you all for holding down the fort. I want to say thank you to our staff and elders. Uh, particularly want to thank Pastor Zach and Elder Keith and, uh, and Jason and Anthony, who all brought fantastic messages while I was gone. And it's good to be back. Uh, a couple other things I just want to mention real quick. This week we had VBS, Vacation Bible School, at our church, and it was awesome. Uh, I was there almost every night on Thursday night. Uh, some of you will know Leslie. She helps lead worship with the Maranatha Band. She gave the gospel message to almost 100 kids. And I couldn't count the number of hands that went up when she asked who would like to invite Jesus to come into their life. It was, it was awesome and it was powerful and it was a huge blessing. And so I just want to say thank you to those of you uh, from our body who were a part of that and served uh, at VBS. Uh, last thing I want to mention, and some of you may notice this, Safari Kids is open today. Yes. That is, uh, um, I'm going to try and keep track of these things as we go through this season of our church, but that is a direct answer to prayer. We've been praying that God would raise up the leaders that we needed, and he did, barely, but we made it. And so that is a huge blessing for our kids to be, uh, not have to listen to me, and get discipled uh, while we all are in here. So pray for them, and uh, if God stirs your heart to serve, uh, we definitely could use more volunteers. Uh, all right. We're continuing our series in Mark that we call Let's Go. And so today we're going to be reading starting in Mark chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 23. We're going to go through chapter 3, verse 12. 2.23 is where we're starting. I'll give you uh, just a handful of seconds to find that uh, in your Bible or on your app. 
And as always, we will show it on the screens uh, if you need to follow along there. Mark 2, starting in verse 23. This is what it says. It says, One Sabbath, he, that's Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Continuing in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, I heard someone many years ago describe your first year in the real world as the freshman year of life. And I love that. And I've used it so many times since then, particularly because it so aptly describes my experience the first year that I was out of college. As many of you know, because I've talked about it many times, my first year out of school, I sold hardwood lumber in Buffalo, New York. And over the last year and a half, as I've been preaching regularly, I have often wondered if God gave me that year in my life just so I would have illustrations for when I was going to preach later on in life. I was clueless when I got to that first job. I studied business and economics in college, but mainly just because I thought it would leave some doors open for me when I graduated. While many of my classmates during the summers were doing internships at J.P. Morgan Chase and Edward Jones, uh, I was working at a Christian outdoor camp in Maine. Awesome. I wouldn't trade it for the world, but it wasn't exactly one-to-one -one training for what life was going to be like when I got into an office someday. To show you how clueless I was, I'm not making this up, on my first day at that job, uh, they gave me a cubicle, they gave me some paperwork to fill out, and then they left me alone. And I, I will never forget sitting there thinking, do I need to ask someone if I need to go to the bathroom, or can I just get up and go anytime I want? I was clueless. And they didn't help very much. Their training program was, here's your territory, go figure it out. <laughs> I, uh, 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 my manager uh, early on told me, 
uh, kind of in passing, but to kind of pass on the culture of the company. He said, we don't stay in expensive hotels. I was 22, I was right out of college. $70 for the Holiday Inn Express seemed expensive to me. And so I spent all of my time staying in the cheapest motels I could find, and I still cringe thinking about some of the places I stayed in. When I couldn't take it anymore, I would splurge on the Super 8 and just hope that no one called me on it when I turned in my expense report at the end of the month. Each month, they would have a little meeting for the salesman and they would give out uh, awards for record months. And in my second month there, one salesman got an award because he had a $1.2 million month. I got an award because I had a $37,000 month. I was clueless. And I spent most of my time that first year wondering when they were gonna fire me. Like, tomorrow's the day I know that they're going to fire me. Because I put all kinds of expectations and pressure on myself that ended up not actually being there. They were my expectations, not my boss's expectations, not the sales manager's expectations, not the company's expectations. They were mine. And I was miserable because I wasn't living up to the expectations that I had. When I finally got, when I did get a new job and, and it was of God and it was the right move and um, it was a huge blessing, when I told him I was leaving, one of the sales managers took me out to breakfast just to kind of debrief it. And I'll never forget how the conversation went. I was already leaving, so I felt all kind of freedom to just be honest with them in ways that I hadn't been honest with them up to that point. And I was like, look, I feel like you guys set me up to fail. Like you gave me the smallest territory with no customers in it. Any customers that existed in the territory they gave me stayed with the previous salesman. So I was just scraping the bottom of the barrel. I was grinding it out, getting very little success, feeling like I was dying a thousand deaths, really every day being like, I'm going to lose my job tomorrow. And I'll never forget what he said. He was like, you're doing exactly what we expected you to do. He's like, you're doing better than we expected you to do. You're the new guy, you're the young guy, you're the junior guy. Of course you get the, the bottom of the barrel. Of course you get the small territory. He's like, you gotta pay your dues and you gotta grind it out. And someday something will change, someone will leave, someone will get a promotion, and then your chance comes. You're doing exactly what, what we were hoping you would do and we hate to lose you. And I'm like, if you could have told me that like six months ago, that would have been really great. This is not part of my sermon, but this is just a freebie. If you're a manager and your people are doing well, just tell them that. It goes a really, really long way. But here's the point. That should have been a really neat season in my life. It should have been a fun, it should have been a season of incredible growth and learning and new experiences. Now, it was selling lumber in Buffalo, so I'm not, I wouldn't have to over-romanticize it. But I was pretty much miserable. And I was pretty much miserable mostly because I had put all these expectations on myself that weren't there. Still, still struggle with that, if I'm being honest, but God's working on it. I ruined something that was good because I had put all these extra expectations on top of it. And before all of you are like, silly young man, and pat me on the head, we all do it. We all do this. We all do this in so many areas of life. We do it at school especially here in a place like Silicon Valley, right? It's like some A's aren't enough. It has to be straight A's. A 3.9 is not good enough, and actually a 4.0 is not good enough. And I don't even know how the math works on this, but it's got to be a 4.2 or whatever. 
We do it at work, right? I mean, I don't even have to, I don't even have to describe that. Just, we, we know what that's like. I, this is a sermon for another day. But God created us to work. And, and obviously, it's been affected by the fall. It's been affected by sin. But at some level, that creation of us to work should carry through into our lives. And we should find some semblance of joy and fulfillment in doing and working and creating because God made us to. But it just is a chore because we put all these expectations on us. It's gotta be, we gotta be better than the next guy. We gotta get the next promotion, the next bonus. And it's just because this, this miserable, never enough deal. For those of us who have kids, we do it with our parenting. Right now, there should be some level of just incredible joy in the process of raising these little lives and, and living with them and, and, and teaching them and, and showing them how to live life but we put so much pressure on ourselves to be the perfect parents, to have perfect kids who are always obedient and play an instrument and excel at a sport and get into an Ivy League school and are well-adjusted and respect their elders and get a great job that we lose the joy that should be inherent in just being a family. We do it with vacation. It's like the time that we're supposed to rest, it's like, we spent so much money on this and it's going to be perfect and everyone's going to be happy and no one's going to be in a foul mood and we got to have all the right meals and we got to take the right pictures to put on Instagram and it ends up not actually being a vacation or restful. Because, amen. Because we're always adding on. We're always adding expectations and pressures that don't need to be there and we don't just do it outside the church. We do it in the church as well. If there is one misconception, one caricature of what it means to follow Jesus that the world outside of the church has, it is this. It is that it is all about rules. It is all about expectations. It's all about living up to some kind of standard that has been set for us. And if we can just keep it 100, a lot of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus feel the same way. We treat this thing as if it's a, if it's a performance deal. As if, as if there are these rules and these expectations and we got to live up to them if we're going to do it the right way. But here's the thing, and if you get nothing else out of this message, here it is because it's, we're going to get to the text eventually. It's what the text is telling us today. Following Jesus is not about rules. It's about people. Following Jesus is not about rules. It is about people. And that is what we are going to see as we look through our text today. Let's just get a little bit of context. The reason we're looking at these three passages together is primarily because the first two deal with the same theme, and that is what? The Sabbath. What does it mean to follow the Sabbath? Remember, the words of, God are in, the words of the Bible are inspired by God. The chapter and verse divisions are not. So I think it's awkward that Mark's gospel has a split between chapter 2 and chapter 3 here because the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 clearly go together. They are both challenges to what it means to observe the Sabbath. And so here's what I wanted to do today. I wanted to preach a sermon on the Sabbath. I wanted to preach a sermon about God's command for us to rest one day a week because we're terrible at it. If we treated the command to Sabbath, if we treated the other commandments in the Ten Commandments like we treat the commandment to Sabbath, we would be in a lot of trouble. I just came off the longest break from work I've had as an adult. And it was good. It was really good. And we need to do better at following God's command to rest. But here's the thing. These passages are not really about the Sabbath. They are at one level, of course. But the Sabbath 
command used in these passages by Mark is simply a representation. It is a representation of all of God's law. See, for the the people in this text, for the Israelites that Jesus was speaking to at this time, they had a law that had been given to them by God called the Mosaic Law. We're in a similar boat. Today, we have a law that's been given to us by God, except it didn't come through Moses on Mount Sinai. It came through the person and teaching of Jesus Christ, who incidentally upholds a lot of the Mosaic Law, but does away with some of it. That's a message for another day. These passages are getting to a deeper question than should we or what does it look like to observe the Sabbath. They are getting to the question that Satan has been putting into the hearts of men and women since the beginning of time, and it is this. Is God for us? Is God good? Is he for us or is it really about rules? Because a lot of people back then and a lot of us today think that it's mostly about rules and expectations. But it is not about rules. It's about people. So only two points to my sermon today. Uh, I had three, and as I was writing it, I was way, way, way over on how long it should have been. I guess I've been gone for a while, and I got all these words inside of me that need to come out. So two points today. And the first thing that I want us to see as we look at these passages is this. God's law is for us, not against us. God's law is for us, not against us. So as we come to our text, uh, you may remember before I went away, uh, we're coming off a series of conflict stories where Jesus is having more and more conflict with the insiders, the religious leaders of the day. And it leads us to this story that we pick up in verse 23. And they are looking for ways to get Jesus. The Mosaic law stated that if you broke the Sabbath, it was punishable by death. Don't miss that, because we're only at the end of Mark chapter 2, but the wheels are already in motion for Jesus' crucifixion uh, 13 chapters from now. He's making some enemies, and they are looking for ways to get him. And so here are his, he and his disciples walking through a field on a Saturday, and the Pharisees are watching them, and they see that Jesus is plucking heads of grain, he and his disciples, and eating them. And now we just got to understand what Sabbath meant to the Israelites back then. Sabbath was a huge deal. Sabbath is a Hebrew word that simply means to stop, to cease, to rest. It was modeled by God in creation. He worked six days creating the earth. And then on the seventh day, he rested. And when he saved his people out of slavery in Egypt and he made a covenant with them, one of the major things that he commanded them to do was one day a week to rest. It was a major way that they were to be a peculiar people, a holy people, a people set out from the nations around them that one day a week, they stopped work. It was for their good and for God's glory. But like so many of God's instructions for us, By the time we get to Jesus, it had been so twisted and turned upside down. This group called the Pharisees, who thought that rule following was the deal, had added all these extra rules and expectations onto all of God's laws, but particularly onto the law, onto the commandment to Sabbath. So they had 39 written forms of work that were prohibited on the Sabbath. You couldn't go for a journey on the Sabbath, and they considered a journey 2,000 steps. So you were allowed to walk 1999 steps, but in 2000, and that was work. If somebody was in imminent threat of dying, you could help them. 
But if it was just a broken bone or a dislocated joint, that needed to wait till sundown because that wasn't going to kill them. You could reap, uh, you could gather on the Sabbath, but you couldn't reap. And here's Jesus and his disciples walking through this field, plucking heads of grain, taking a snack on a Saturday stroll, and the Pharisees are like, gotcha. And what does Jesus say to them? He points them to a story in their own scriptures. It's in 1 Samuel 21. We don't, time doesn't permit for us to go there this morning. But he points them to a story about David, the greatest king in Israel's history, the one whom these very Pharisees were waiting for his descendant to come and set them free. He was right in front of them in the moment. And he says, remember when David was running away from Saul who was trying to kill him? He and his men, and they were starving, and they came to the tabernacle, and the only food that was there was the holy bread, which only the priests were supposed to eat. Do you remember what David did? He said, I'll take it for me and my men, and he ate it. And then he says this, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Do you see what he is saying? He's saying, you have twisted it so upside down. He's saying, look, God did not create a bunch of rules and then create people in order to follow those rules. He's saying, God created man and then he gave them rules for their good and for his glory. These rules, my law, it is not against you, it is for you. Because God's laws are not against us. They are for us. One of the highlights of our trip last month uh, was we spent a day uh, at Dollywood. Okay, that's what I expected. (laughs) Dollywood is Dolly Parton's amusement park in Sevierville, Tennessee. Now, I am not, we're not an amusement park family, probably because I'm not an amusement park guy. $100 per person to get in. A million people. Hours standing in the blazing hot sun in line for a 90-second ride. $15 funnel cakes. Call me Scrooge. It's just not my deal. Love the rides. They're fun. If I could just go without anyone else there and on a cloudy day, it'd be great. But my parents had free passes, and so we went. And it was it, like, in all of about 10 minutes there, I was like, oh, yeah, this is why I don't do amusement parks. But it turned out to be a, a, a wonderful day, a blast. And maybe the best part of it was our 10-year-old, Howie, was dead set on riding his first roller coasters. And so uh, Beth and I went with him on his first coasters. And it was actually a really neat parenting moment, uh, standing in line for that first coaster. And he had just been like, I want to ride it, I want to ride it, I want to ride it. And then we get in line, and you can see he just kind of gets quiet. And he's watching the coaster go. And we're like, hey, bud, we can step out of line anytime you want. And just, he was like, nope, I'm going to do it. And, and he faced that fear and anxiety. And we walked up on the platform after an hour and sat down in that car. And he loved it. But imagine this. Imagine if we had gotten in that coaster. And as the attendant came around to put the lap restraint down, the bar down on his lap. Imagine if Howie had been like, What? No, 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 no. You're not going to put that restraint on me. That is not how I want to enjoy this ride. You can't restrict me like that. That is, that is, that is not within your, your purview to do to me, and I want to enjoy this lie, ride without any kind of restraint. He better hope that his forearms are like super strong because the first time that coaster does a loop-de-loop, 
he's going to be hanging upside down or he's going to be praying that it makes it to the bottom of the loop to catch him after he has fallen out of the car. Why? Because the restraint on a roller coaster is not a restriction, it is a kindness. It is a goodness. It allows you to enjoy the ride in the way that it was intended to be enjoyed. Without that restraint, the ride probably ends in death. And so it is with God's law. God's law is not a restraint. It is a kindness. It is a goodness towards us that allows us to do the ride of life in the way that God intended for it to be done. The problem is so many outside of the church and many of us inside of the church look at the traditional Christian ethic, which is just a fancy way of saying the teachings of Jesus. And we look at things like marriage is one man and one woman for life. That sex is for one man and one woman inside the covenant of marriage. That we're called to sacrifice our time and our money generously. That we are called to live simply. That we are called not to retaliate when someone wrongs us. That we are called to take one day a week and rest. And they're like, that is so counter to the stream of culture that is flowing in this direction. And it's like, that's a drag. That's a bummer. That can't be the way I want to live my life. And yet Jesus is saying in this passage, my law is for your good. It was made for you. My law is not against you. It is for you. Uh, my kids love Legos. And when you get a Lego set, you get what with it? An instruction manual. Why? Because there is a designer. There's a designer who designed that Lego set. And that instruction manual, by following it, will get you to the place it was designed to go. And there is a designer for life. And his name is God. And this is his instruction manual for life. He is like, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the creator of everything. He made you and me and everything inside of us. He made our bones and our joints and our marrow and our skin. He made our brains and he, he knows our gray matter and our synapses and the chemicals, all these things that we can barely scratch the surface in knowing. And he's like, I know how you were designed. This is the way to do life. Why does he tell us to Sabbath? Because he made us to rest. Why does he give us the sexual ethic that he does? Because he designed us to flourish under those conditions. Why does he call us to love and sacrifice and give generously for others? Because he knows that we will experience a joy and a fulfillment and a satisfaction as human beings when we love and give and serve others that we can't experience any other way because he made us that way. And here we are, we're like, we don't even understand how Bitcoin works. But we're like, I know how I work and I know what's best for me and so thanks a lot, God, for your ideas about how to live life, but I think I'm good on my own. But nothing could be further from the truth. God is the creator. He is the one who designed us. He is the designer and he has given us his guidelines. He has given us his law. He has given us his instructions for living, not to make life a drag and tear us down, not to restrict us, but to set us free. His law is for our good. His law is for us. It is not against us. So that's the first thing I want us to see in this passage. And the second thing is this. God's law reveals our hearts. God's law reveals our hearts. So we finish up that first section, verse 28. Jesus says to the Pharisees, so the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He's basically like, I created it, so it's kind of my deal. 
His LinkedIn profile says co-founder of the Sabbath. So, he, and he's like, and just, just, so, just to prove it to you, let me just show you that I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And that's what we get in the next section, verses one through six. So he goes into the synagogue. It's a Sabbath. They're having, they're having Sabbath services. So presumably it's packed with people from whatever town he's in, probably Capernaum, but we're not, it doesn't say for sure. And there's a man there who's got, who's got a disabled hand or a disabled arm. Now that guy would have faced incredible shame and been ostracized because of that physical disability. If they had been in Jerusalem, he would not have been allowed to worship in the temple because he was physically disabled. So somehow, here he is in the synagogue. He probably snuck in the back, hoping that he wouldn't be noticed at all. And Jesus sees him and he says in verse three, come here. Now the English translators had taken a little bit of liberty there. The literal Greek says, stand up in the middle. And this guy who probably was hoping upon hope that no one would notice him is like I knew this was the day I should have gone to brunch <laughs> Jesus is like stand up here in the middle if you've if you've been to Israel or seen pictures the synagogues were like stadium seating it was raised seating all the way around and so he tells this guy stand up here in the middle and then he speaks to the crowd that's there in the synagogue and this is what he says is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm to save life or to kill remember this is the crowd who were like, if someone is bleeding out, you can try and save them on the Sabbath. But anything else, you can do that the other six days of the week. And notice how Jesus frames the question. This is so critical for us to see what he's saying in this passage. He does not say, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do nothing? To save life or to do nothing? Because that's what the crowd thought the choice was. That's what the Pharisees thought the choice was. They thought the choice was to do good or to do nothing. To save life or to do nothing. But Jesus is like, there is no neutral. This is why we're calling this series Let's Go. Because this is the let's go moment of today's passage. Jesus is standing there in front of all these people who are like, you can't help this man on the Sabbath. And he is like, not to do good is to do evil. Not to save life is to kill because people come first. It is not about rules. It is about people. Let's go. Jesus is in the midst of them saying, let's go. You have twisted this. You have missed it. You have added all these expectations and rules that were never intended by God. The Pharisees had come into full contact with God's heart as revealed through his law and it reveals their own hearts. Mark only needs four English words. He wasn't writing in English. He only needs three Greek words to tell us how they responded. And in my opinion, it's one of the most haunting sentences in the entire Bible. But they were silent. They were silent. They were more concerned with their rules and regulations than with a person. And Jesus does what? He says, stretch out your hand. The man stretches out his hand and it's healed. And then the Pharisees leave and that very moment begin to plot how they can kill him. Now, Mark loves irony. This is, uh, this is just a freebie. It doesn't really serve the point that we're in. But as, as we get to the end of that, that story, don't miss the irony here. How did Jesus heal this man? He spoke. He didn't make a splint. He didn't make an ointment. He didn't rub any cream on it. He spoke. You were allowed to speak on the Sabbath. He didn't break any Sabbath laws, his own or theirs. 
but they were so concerned with the extras that they had added on that they, on a day that Jesus' words literally gave life, they on the same Sabbath went out and began to plot how to kill. On the Sabbath. Don't miss the irony. Some of you may be wondering why I have a couple bandages on my forehead, and maybe you wouldn't be able to notice it if I wasn't projected like 30 feet high back here. No need to zoom in on it for our camera folks. I wish I had a great story. On Friday, I ran into a doorway in my house. You can laugh, it's okay. Uh, I apparently lost my spatial awareness and I spun around to go through a doorway and I led with my forehead, wham, right into the doorway. And for 45 seconds to a minute, I was pretty sure that was the day my life was gonna end. I, I was pretty sure that was it. Uh, I, was, I, I was sure I had accordioned the front of my skull and this, these were my last moments. Uh, after I recognized that probably wasn't what was gonna happen, uh, I, I then began to realize that uh, it wasn't just going to be a bruise or a knot based on the blood that was in my hand. And my first thought was, I gotta preach on Sunday. Uh, fortunately, didn't need any stitches. I uh, just got some these butterfly things and uh, I think we'll be good to go. I ran into the doorway and what was on my inside came out. The same thing happens when we run into God's law. When we run into God's law, what is inside of us comes out. In this passage we just looked at, the Pharisees, again, they came, bam, right into God's law and their hearts were revealed, cold, mean, idolatrous, dead hearts that were more concerned with uh, rules and, and expectations and self-righteousness and performance than they were with a living, breathing, suffering human being. And the question we all need to ask ourselves today is when we come into contact with God's law, what is it going to reveal about our own hearts? Prideful rebellion or humble obedience. Let me frame it this way. Uh, in the Old Testament, there are two times that the Ten Commandments are explicitly laid out, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. The spirit of the Ten Commandments all over the Old Testament, it's referred to in a bunch of different places. Two times where the Ten Commandments are explicitly given by God to his people, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. In both of those instances, do you know how God starts the Ten Commandments? It is not with commandment number one. This is what he says every time. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now we gotta get this because it is so critical for how we understand God and his heart and what his guidelines for living mean for us. Check the order. God says, I am the God who saved you who delivered you out of slavery, who brought you from death to life. Now here is how you should live. God did not send Moses to the Israelites in Egypt and say, Moses, tell them this. Here are my 10 commandments. Let's take nine or 12 months and see how you do with obeying them. And if you do well, then perhaps I can save you up out of slavery. That's not what he did. He went to, he said, Moses, go tell them Yahweh is here and we're getting on up out of this place. And when he delivered them from slavery, when he took them from death to life, then he said to them, here is how you are to live. And the same is true for you and me. God does not come to us in our sin and say, here is how I want you to live. Let's see how you do with it for a little while and then maybe if you're good enough, 
I will save you. He comes to us in our sin and he rescues us and he saves us. And then he says, and now here is how you are to live. How should the Israelites have responded to God's law? Anything. Anything you ask of us, God, we will do. If you want us to walk backward and cluck like chickens for the rest of our lives, we will do it. Because you have done more for us than we could have ever imagined. And how should our response be? The same. Anything. Anything you want, God, I will do because of what you have done for me already. You have done more than I could have hoped or imagined. And if you've done nothing else for the rest of my life, it is enough. I will do anything. You want me to stop sleeping with my girlfriend? I'll do it. You want me to start giving my money and my time more generously? I'll do it. You want me to ask for forgiveness from that person that I hurt two years ago? I'll do it. You, you want me to, to blow up my life and move across the country away from everyone I know and love to answer your call in my life, I will do it. You want me to lose my life, to die to myself in order that I might find it, I'll do it. When the call of Jesus comes into our lives, may it not be said of us, but they were silent. Because God's law reveals our hearts. Now here's the problem. We're getting to the end and now I'm gonna tell you what the problem is. We can't do it. We can't do it. We, we, we can't obey. We can't live up to God's expectations. Uh, why is the Old Testament, at least in my Bible, I checked it this week, 750 more pages after God saves his people out of Israel and gives them his commandments? Because it's the story of how over and over and over and over and over again, they could not do it. They could not live up to his standard. They could not obey his laws. And their story is our story. We can't do it either. That's why it's not about rules. It's about people. And here it is. It's actually about a person. I kind of have to gloss over the last section of text that we read today. Why were so many people drawn to Jesus when he walked this earth? Not everyone was, but why were so many people drawn to Jesus when he walked this earth? Because they were tired of striving. They were tired of following the rules. They were tired of following all the expectations and never living up to it. It is exhausting to live a life of trying to follow the rules. And they found in Jesus the rest they were looking for. Get it? They found the Sabbath rest they were looking for in Jesus Christ. And the same is true for us. Following the rules is exhausting. And it's a loser's game. And God knew that. And it's why he sent his son. It's why he sent the son of man. It's why he sent the Lord of the Sabbath. The only one who could obey the law. What did Jesus say? I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He was the only one who could obey it, and yet he took upon himself the curse for someone who did not obey it so that you and I, when we make him Lord of our life, do not have to take that curse upon ourselves. So if someone here today is tired, if you are tired of striving, if you are tired of looking for rest and not finding it, 
Rest is found in a person. And it's found in Jesus. It is not about the rules. At one level it is, I gotta nuance everything, I know that. Doesn't mean you can just go do whatever you want. It's not about the rules primarily. It's about a person. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. With every head bowed and eyes closed, God, we want to acknowledge to you that we do a poor job of trusting that you know what's best for us and walking in the way that you have provided for us. We know in our heads, some of us, that your law gives us life, but in our hearts, God, it is hard to follow that because we are constantly fighting ourselves, constantly looking to get the things that we think we want and the things that we think are good for us. So I just want to offer two invitations as we're praying today. If there is somebody here who is tired, who is tired of feeling the burden of trying to perform, of trying to follow all the rules, of trying to live up to the expectations that are impossible to live up, I pray, God, that you would move in their heart to give that to you. And conversely, God, if there's someone here or someone watching online who is doing life their way and is recognizing that it just doesn't work well, this, this room and our online stream are full of people, God, who can testify that they tried life their way and it was a train wreck. And when they did life your way, they, they found a life they didn't think existed. If there is someone here today, God, someone listening who is, who, is, who is fighting you and doing it their way, I pray, God, that you would soften their heart and allow them to, um, to submit to your lordship in their life and begin to walk in the way that you have for them. We all need help, God. We all need help to do what is right. We don't want to be silent when you come calling in our lives, and we ask that you would give us the courage and the power to walk in your way. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Uh, and again, just a reminder, we're asking that folks exit out all the way out uh, as quickly as possible, and, but then please feel free to, to fellowship outside the church. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Until we meet again, or until our Savior comes, and then forever. Amen. You're loved and you're prayed for and you are sent.